Right, so this talk on Deleuze's migrants and nomads and the European Union in 2014. Um, I'm hoping not to disappoint the Deleuzeans or the people that are here for practical European politics. It's going to be a bit of a mix of different things. Um, I'm hoping to find out how quite specific philosophy can perhaps suggest some ideas of how to think about what's going on in Europe today. Um, and those of you who had a chance to read the text might have found it a bit heavy going. It is. Deleuze isn't an easy philosopher. Um, it's not essential to have read the text before the talk. You might want to go away and read it. Uh, you might want to chuck it in the bin as it's uh, as nonsense. Uh, but I'm hoping I will try, you know, make it a slightly easier and maybe make sense of it for you today. I'm also uh, looking at Rosie Brodotti quite a lot because she provides um, the kind of practical application of Deleuze's idea to the European Union as she's done that work. So she's going to uh, provide us with this link uh, between Deleuze's ideas and these attitudes uh, to migration that we're facing at the moment in the UK but elsewhere in Europe as well. So I find philosophy really exciting and interesting, but I do get quite frustrated sometimes um, with the lack of practical implementation of sort of grand philosophical ideas and rhetoric. Um, but I gotta, I'm going to do my best, but I guess I better warn you that I don't think I have any really good practical solutions, but actually I would like to ask you some questions at the end, and maybe you can help me come up with some ideas. Um, what I want to do is just stimulate thinking towards these practical solutions. Um, so Rosie Bradotti, I think, is, as I said, the practical link, and she stresses that uh, all theory critique has to be located or embedded and embodied, as she calls it. Um, to her, it's a matter of understanding and accountability to declare a position. So I'm going to start by declaring my own position. Um, and obviously, standing here, I'm clearly speaking for a very privileged position as an educated middle-class kind of elite uh, person, but I think the story isn't that simple. So here's my mum and dad. I don't know if you can see them. They're looking very, very glamorous. Uh, my mum and dad. Yeah, can we have the lights slightly lower so you can see the beauty of my my mum and dad in the 60s? They were probably younger younger than um, what I am now. Uh, and just to say, you know, my mum is Polish and my dad's Romanian. So uh, to kind of situate me in the middle of uh, various European uh, debates going on at the moment, I am half Polish and half Romanian. They uh, moved to Sweden with me as a baby, so I grew up in Sweden, uh, and I came to the UK in 1995, so I'll just say that. But just to go back, I think with my mum and dad coming together... Um, it's quite an interesting family history that is tainted by both the political far right and the political far left battling it out in Europe over the last century. Um, our family history is very much tainted by the Russian Revolution and two world wars. So both the Polish and Romanian side were quite bourgeois grandparents, uh, and they had a lot of national pride, but also very local pride. But I think they also felt quite part of a pan-European intelligentsia. They, they travelled quite widely. But their lives were quite blighted by uh, wars against fascism and as well by communism. 
And I'll say a bit more about this if I have time, but ultimately, the older generation, so my parents' parents, were kind of left quite bitter. Uh, and if I, I must admit, leaning towards the far right, uh, xenophobia was the only thing that the European wars really engendered in my family uh, of, in that generation. Uh, there was a lot of kind of hatred and bitterness to those that came and took away uh, whatever their ilk. Um, so that's, a, that's an interesting background, um, considering that, as Rosie Brodotti stresses, the European Union is an anti-fascist uh, project, but also obviously set up against uh, the communist states uh, during the Cold War. So my parents then, um, they were, I guess, political and economic refugees, but if we're going to be honest, they're probably more economic refugees. Um, they fled the bleak prospects of the Euro Eastern Europe under communism for a much brighter more equitable and free, but also more prosperous West in the 70s. Um, and in many ways, they were model migrants, you know, model uh, immigrants. They were highly educated. They did do some non-skilled jobs while they were, you know, taking the first steps. They learned the language. Uh, they had career in the health service and um, entrepreneurship. Um, but they never really felt at home, and I never really felt at home. I never really engaged with Swedish culture at home. Uh, there was also some disillusion with capitalism and what the West was after the sort of rosy pictures that they had coming from, from the East in the 70s. Um, Anglophilia has been in my family for a long time, since the de early days of the uh, early 20th century, as the UK always seemed like a place of freedom. Um, and that kind of that was passed on to me through my parents. Um, so although I never felt Swedish and not really Polish either, and certainly not Romanian uh, for various reasons, um, I chose to come to the UK. So in 1994, I explicitly voted yes to, for Sweden to join the European Union in the referendum that was held in the Sweden. It was, I think I just turned 18. It was one of my, the first times I voted. And I was quite excited because I could vote yes for the European Union, which meant that I could come to the UK and get free education. So uh, it's pretty, you know, I had, you know, completely declare my uh, sort of position as a migrant uh, that wanted to come here and have a free education, uh, you know, paid for by then the uh, local education authority in the UK. So I wanted just to remind you as well that the whole uh, old and new countries in the European Union uh, is a kind of quite fluid entity. I, this is the best map I could find. I think it's already changed because Croatia has uh, joined the Union in 2013, I think. Anyway... There's been stages of old and new countries of the European Union. So when I first came to the UK, I was one of the mi first migrants from the new uh, member states, uh, which was then Sweden, uh, joined in 1995. So I feel mostly at home in London, uh, although I am leaving as well, but that's another story. Um, but it is a special place, London, of course. Interestingly, though, I pass as a Brit. Uh, some people hear my accent, some people don't. Um, many people are surprised when I tell them about my background. And I've had people, colleagues, come up to me and kind of give me, unknowingly give me the 
especially in the recent years, oh, there's far too many immigrants from Eastern Europe spiel. And I kind of had to go, yeah, but you know, I'm I Polish, you know, Romanian background, and I'm Swedish. I'm here. I'm, I'm you know. And I get, oh, yeah, but that's, that's fine. That's, you're different. That's not the same thing. Uh, so I can't but, but note that being white, fluent in English, and middle class is quite an advantage. Um, so with that little story, I wanted to kind of give you the background to declare my theoretical positions. Um, so there's two positions that come out of my history, and that's A, and that's that I'm passionately in favour of enabling my migration as much as is practically possible. I do understand that there are practical considerations. But I believe that everyone, and I mean everyone, not just Europeans, have the right to try their luck anywhere in the world, and that the accident of birthplace you know, shouldn't be one of absolute restriction. I don't see anything wrong. I see it pretty natural and even laudable to want to improve one's lot and the lot of one family. Uh, and if migration is the way to do it, why not? My parents did it for me. Obviously, I didn't have much choice. I did migrate when I was a baby. But, uh, and I, re I reaped enormous rewards. And the second position is that I can't help to feel uh, that sentiment around migration is very much to do uh, with economics and class. Um, of course, it's an issue about race, uh, but I think many, much because race is inadvertently linked to distribution of wealth in an equitable way. Um, so I do think that the immigration debate has to consider class as central, but perhaps not in a sort of simplistic uh, way which we've seen blaming the white working class for you know, being UKIP voters, basically, but I'll come back to that a bit later. Um, rather, I believe, I think it's a matter of trying to find a way of including those who currently feel left out from the, um, of the European project. Uh, it's obvious, maybe, that um, I feel that this project is one that is moving us towards a better idea of, you know, um, of identity, a better concept of, kind of post-national identity. Um, and that my position is that those that are sceptical towards the EU and towards free migration within the EU need to be persuaded of its benefits rather than to kind of be given an opt-out. So it's obviously got to do with my view on, the, on this idea. But I think that the European project is one that forces us to rethink identity and how, we pl and how place and migration links to self and subjectivity. This rethinking is far easier, I, I admit, if one is in a position of privilege, as my own experience shows. Uh, but I want to work towards is considering what steps have to be taken to allow this rethinking of territorial identity to be more widely accessible and more inclusive. Um, the experience of the migrant is never easy, even from a privileged position. But what we perhaps don't consider enough is the experience not only of those who migrate, but those who stay in one place, whether it's stay behind or, of course, as it may be most important for us today here in the UK, those uh, who are stationary in the country being migrated to. So migration on the scale we're seeing in the European Union today is changing life, not just for the migrant, but for everyone. 
So it's changing the way we identify and connection to the place we live for everyone. Um, right, so... Uh, the two thinker, contemporary thinkers that I'm going to use today is Gilles Deleuze, just a very quick uh, reminder of who these people are or introduction, if you're not familiar with them. So what Deleuze's idea of the nomad, as opposed to the migrant, can do is to suggest the way of thinking about a sense of place and belonging in a radically different way. Um, so a way that I'll argue applies both to those that move and those that stay put. Um, Whereas Bridotti, who herself is well-versed in moving across borders, she's got an Italian background, lived in Australia, is now based in the Netherlands, uh, allows us to think about this, and she talks about the disidentification from established na nation-bound identities for all Europeans. So this disidentification uh, engenders a loss, a loss and a sense of pain. And again, she reminds us that the loss and pain of the migrant is well documented or represented, but that of the dislocated centre isn't. So using a Deleuzean term, uh, becoming minoritarian, and I'd like to remind you or introduce, so when Deleuze or Bradotti using Deleuze's term minority or minoritarian, it's not about numbers, it's more about states or ways of looking at things. I'll talk a bit more about that. But she talks about the becoming minoritarian of Europe, that Europe is becoming a place where all identities are becoming more and more hybrid and in between. So it's not just the dislocation of the other, but also of the same, of the centre. So that which has been taken for granted, whether that's privilege, but also place and belonging, must shift and change. And it can be difficult, but it can also be a good thing. And Bredotti stresses that this has to be done with empathy and compassion, but also a refusal to give in and accept um, xenophobia. Um, as I said before, she reminds us that EU was a fundamentally anti-fascist project. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is talk about Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari, who are having a drink in a French cafe. Um, and this is the kind of quite dense philosophical bit. So uh, if you're interested, that's great. If you lose me, I'm going to go into some deep philosophy and then I'm going to start going towards more practical stuff. So if you kind of return in a few minutes, you might pick, pick up again. Um, right. So I don't know how familiar you are with Deleuze's work, but his idea of the nomad and a migrant, they fit right into Deleuze's larger philosophical project, um, which is a very complex and extensive investigation of a metaphysical and material nature of being itself. So it's an ontology. Um, there we go, Deleuze. Deleuze and being. He talks about being. And it could be summarised like this, that he says the paradoxical statement that all that is, is in the same way. And what he means by this is not that all beings are the same, but that the nature or essence of all beings is the same. So it's kind of anti-hierarchies or demarcations between kinds of things, kinds of beings. Nevertheless, he said, there are two sides or two poles of being, uh, which he calls the actual and virtual. Um, and to him, all things in this world fall somewhere on the spectrum between actual and virtual. 
Uh, and importantly, all things can change so they can move along from one pole to another, and they do continually. So let's try, I'm just going to briefly introduce these ideas. So the actual is that which exists in time and space. So it's matter and form, but it's also ideas and thoughts, but it's kind of it's our reality. It's what is here that we can feel and what we know about. Whereas the virtual is a much more difficult concept, uh, has been debated quite a lot what Deleuze actually meant by the virtual, I think. Um, but he tells us an abstract or potential multiplicity, or again, I'm quoting here, a pluralism of free, wild, or untamed difference. It doesn't really matter here exactly what it is. What interests me is that he says that this virtual is the essence of all being, before it becomes all being. So you can think about it like a kind of primordial chaos out of which all beings emerge, uh, but without this chaos disappearing or changing. And it's not, for those familiar with philosophy, it's not like a platonic form, so it's not an ideal uh, thing that, you know, ideal form that all beings aspire to, but rather it's a kind of essence at the core of all beings. All, it's all, always there. It's just that some beings are lean more towards the virtual pole and some beings more towards the actual. Um, it'll become slightly clearer when I go on to Deleuze and Guattari. Deleuze's philosophical project consists in applying this kind of ontological idea to a lot of philosophical thought, uh, as well as material circumstances. And that, so he did a lot of work on uh, pure philosophy and talked a lot of, wrote a lot of books about famous philosophers. But he also did this work with Guattari, who's the fellow on the right. Um, and in his books with Guattari, he talks a lot more about the structures of the real world. So he applies his ideas, his philosophical ideas, to things like politics, sociology, history, and psychology. But they, in, in their books, Deleuze and Guattari build quite deliberately on Deleuze's metaphysics, this actual and virtual. And in Deleuze and Guattari's analyses of the structures of the world, or what they call assemblages, um, so that's basically everything is either a structure or an assemblage for them. There are always two poles, uh, which maybe most famously has been called territorialized and deterritorialized. Um, so anything that tends to be territorialized is more rigid, stable, segmented, striated, coded, defined, or determined. So it's more rule bound. And anything that's deterritorialized is fluid, always in flight, flowing, smooth, free, undefined, and undetermined. And so these kind of analyses of the structures of the world correspond to this virtual and actual ontology of Deleuze's. Um, so that's why I wanted to give you the background <coughs> to it. So all things in the world are aligned one way or another, but everything possesses both sides. So anything, everything can change. It can go... So that... And this is a real tongue twister. That which is territorialized can always become deterritorialized, and that which is deterritorialized can always become re-territorialized. If you've read any Deleuze and Guattari, you know how this comes up again and again and again in there. Um, Thing. And in reality, all things are in constant flux between these poles. And if you are familiar with Deleuze and Guattari, you'll see that they use this 
this kind of polarity and all sorts of things. You'll know f- terms like rhizomes or trees, micropolitical, micropolitical, smooth, striated, molecular, molar, lines and points. And of course, nomadic and sedentary. So that's the idea. So that's the background. That's the heavy-duty philosophical background to this idea of nomads and migrants. Um, and so the idea of the nomad and migrant is using this philosophy in an analysis of how humans relate to space and how this relation determines identity. So this is where the text comes in. So if you've read it, this would be familiar. If not, this might be easier make sense of it. Oh, I can't really see. Well, you can see what that is. There's lots of fields um, and that is a desert. There you go. There you can see it now. Um, so if you read the text, you get these uh, words. Again, we've got smooth and striated play- space. Um, smooth, striated. Deterritorialized, territorialized, nomadic, and sedentary. So these satellite images kind of make very clear what they're talking about. Um, so the desert is smooth, the agricultural land is striated. Um, and of course, what this extract that I've given you in text uh, describes is how human political application, I suppose, to the earth is what makes it striated. So what they say in short in the text is that in the agricultural model, parcels of land are distributed to people. So bits of land are divided and demarcated in order to give ownership. So you've got this land, that's yours, this is mine. And of course, the division of land influences the mode of movement across it. So these divisions make places. You move from one place to another, from this field to that field. Roads and walls determine the route one needs to take from A to B. You can't just go across these fields. You need to follow the roads. Whereas in the desert, of course, there are no boundaries or lines. There, are, there is no clearly demarcated ownership. There are no places. So people don't belong in one square or another. Rather, they're distributed on the land. Okay as they travel across it, unrestricted by walls or roads. So it's not that there are no destinations and no points that are here. There are, of course, oases and cities or whatever. But the route from point A to point B is not determined in the same way as in striated land, but it's open, more free. They can take any trajectory across this undifferentiated, smooth land. So what's interesting here is Deleuze and Guattari's unique way of playing with terms and meanings. Uh, So in that extract, they um, oppose the Greek terms nomos and polis. uh, And they kind of make the connection from nomos uh, to nomad, which is an etymology of the word. Um, So, but of course, it's, it's an interesting connection because it's not quite an opposition. We've got nomos, which means custom, law, ordinance, and polis, which means city, or then becomes a country or community after that. More, so nomos is usually uh, actually pitted against physis, which is kind of nature, um, 
So the Greek sophists oppose the lack of rules and regulations in wild or untamed nature with the laws of society, so the nomos. Um, so laws are sort of customs instituted by humans to, you know, to enable society uh, for the save, sake of survival. So you've got wild nature, physis, and then nomos, which is the law. But uh, Deleuze and Guattari kind of, as they always do, uh, throw a little curveball into this etymology, and they kind of specifically trace nomos back uh, to nomos pasture. And also to nemo, which means uh, to deal out or dis- distribute, and it was meant in initially uh, to pasture or graze their flocks, to drive to pes- pasture, to tend. So to distribute animals across the land. And uh, following also to roaming, roving, or wandering about. So that's why, so they make this kind of uh, connection. So why are Deleuze and Guattari engaging in these terms in this way? Um, I think they're trying to imply two things. One is that the nomadic distribution of land is not somehow a natural state of man versus civilization in the city. Um, So it's not a matter of the kind of natural uh, nomad versus the civilized city dweller. Rather, they're saying both the nomadic and the city uh, way of living are customs, they're laws, they are instituted by man. However, they're just two different ways of doing things. So that's the second implication, there are different kinds of law. One that follows the divisions of structure, um, you know, in the same way that D&G do some, are micro-political, macro-political, uh, smooth, striated, etc. Their division, it follows the two different kinds of law. Uh, there is the nomos and the polis. So one is that of the nomads, distribution of people and animals across the land, and the other one is the, of the polis, the city-state, which is dividing land between people. And crucially, of course, then we come to that the idea of this polis or the city is what lies at the heart of our idea of citizenship and the modern nation-state. So what Deleuze and Guattari are doing here is offering an alternative model of the relation of people to land, to territory, than that that underlies our usual idea of national citizenship. If national citizenship is a territorialized relation between human and land, the idea of nomadism is a deterritorialized relation. I'm taking goats as an example here. It could be uh, Deleuze and Guattari talk about people, but I found pictures of goats being more conducive to explain the difference between the nomadic distribution and then the, and the sedentary distribution. So the difference between the nomad and migrant has everything to do with the way that we choose to relate to the land, to our territory. The nomad and the migrant may perform the same movement from point A to point B, but they will relate to that movement in a very different way. The the migrant moves from place to place, from a determined territory which is owned and regulated by particular people to another determined territory owned and regulated by someone else. The route the migrant takes, the beginning and end of his or her journey, are determined by these territories and, these, and their rules. The nomad, on the other hand, for them, their points are only relays on an ongoing journey. 
The points are not inconsequential to the nomad, but his or her relation to these points or places is very different to that of the migrant. So movement in itself is the neutral, natural state for the nomad. It's part of his and her relationship to the land, to the extent that it's no longer relevant as movement. So in that extract, the and Guattari say that the nomads are actually the ones who stand still. Um, so basically, in a sort of undifferentiated, smooth space, if you don't have rigid, delineated places, movement itself becomes irrelevant. Movement disappears. It becomes a mode of being. So what can we take from this to Europe? My suggestion is not that we can label those that move from country to country nomads or migrants or whatever, or that we are talking about migrants or not migrants. Rather than that we can think of everyone as nomads or that we have to, that Europe is posing a challenge to us that, needs, that we need to rethink the way we connect to territory and that nom- being a nomad is a solution to this, is one way of thinking it. And I think that for the European project to be successful, we have to persuade, to persuade people to think like nomads, whether they, whether they are moving or not. And that the nomadic way of thinking uh, is about the future of Europe and where we live and how we're going to relate to the land, but also beyond Europe and uh, probably about migration and movement in a global scale. Uh, This is just a little illustration. So you can see migrations in Europe from some time ago. So I just wanted to point out that, of course... The idea of a pure migrant uh, is a myth. You know, there is no such thing as where people come from an established territory, you know, as to to conquer completely or to integrate completely. Um, This idea that people are either outright hostile or entirely happy to fit in to where they're going is, of course, a bit of a myth. So the perfect simple migrant never existed. From the Viking invasions to the Windrush, People that came here to the UK have always mixed and matched and integrated or imposed, where the customs, traditions and norms, they're always learned and taught. Um, and for, as Deleuze and Guattari state, and you know, things like this, uh, migrants and nomads are poles on the spectrum. Uh, they can mix in many ways. There's a kind of infinitely gradiated spectrum in between. Each instance has elements of the others to a greater and lesser degree. However, I do think that these extreme poles are useful for thinking about how people relate to territory and to the way we move. And I would suggest that the European Union as a political idea, as well as a practical reality, and there's a bit of both in there, represents a move, a swing from the sedentary to the nomadic pole in terms of the connection between people and their land and the, the land they live on. It's a move away from the polis or citizenship model uh, towards the nomos kind of distribution of people. And I think this is, entails a fundamental and very, very difficult shift in how people in Europe relate to their place and their movement. Um, and this is where Rosie Brodotti's work comes in and is very useful because he is, she has explicitly connected Deleuzean ideas uh, on the nomadic with the project of the European Union. 
Um, so Bradotti makes the key observation that the idea of the nation state and the idea of Europe are intimately linked. And it take us back again to the Greek idea of the polis. Uh, the Greek idea of the polis in the city uh, is in the foundation of a few thousand years of history, which I would say culminated in the 19th century European heyday of the nation state. I don't have time for a detailed history uh, of the nation state. It's also disputed and complicated. Um, but I'm going to kind of simplify and say, kind of commonly acknowledge that with the unification movements of Italy and Germany, as well as the imperial endeavours of Britain and other European countries, uh, a couple of centuries ago, that's kind of central to the birth of the nation state. So both these movements, unification and imperialism, necessitated the ideas and concepts of nationalism. The territorial, linguistic, ethnic and cultural identification with and against. Okay, so with people of one owns nation state, defined by determined borders, and against those of other nation states or the land which such states were yet, yet to be founded um, or implemented. So I just found these maps. Uh, you probably can't see, but there are no borders of this on this map, which, incidentally, my mother and father had on their wall in, in, at home. I don't know why that kind of says weird connection. Um, there are lots of place names, but there are no borders. And then in 1898, this map obviously has borders in the nice colours that um, we know and love. I also found another couple of maps, but I didn't... Uh, but you might want to have a look uh, of Africa before and after uh, conferences of Europe carving it out. Right, so we've got basically a clear example of the striation of space. So obviously the nation state is all about striating, is parceling out defined units of land to defined numbers of people. And Brodotti continues, the idea of the European nation-state is inextricably linked with the European or Western way of thinking. It's a tradition of thought that defines itself as rational, scientific, and technological. And even here we go back to the ancient Greeks of the polis. It's a logic that belongs to the Greeks. The syllogism, the Greek, the kind of classical Greek logical system, and the nation states, I would say, share a logical essence, belonging and not belonging. And maybe the most classical uh, syllogism is all humans are mortal, Socrates is a human, therefore Socrates is mortal. We uh, can break it down like that. And even as I looked at this uh, visualization of the syllogism, I already see that it's striated. Uh, you know, you've got your little countries, you've got your little belongings, you've got your little places, uh, your, your borders. It's already building walls. So this syllogism, which is one of the most famous ones, I'm sure you've all heard it, deals with death. And so its logic seems inevitably true. And I think that somehow this inevitability of mortality, that's clearly true for Socrates and all humans, sort of rubs itself off on all other syllogistic statements. For example, all Romanians are gypsies. Bogdan is a Romanian, therefore Bogdan is a gypsy. Or all gypsies are thieves, Bogdan is a gypsy, therefore Bogdan is a thief. That's the sort of sedentary logic, I know I'm being slightly facetious, but sort of sedentary logic in which characteristics are attributed to people erecting boundaries between them and us. 
It's a logic that, as Bredotti points out, is what na- is implicit in nationalism. And I actually, uh, a while ago, I met uh, someone who grew up in former Slovakia. Well, it was Czechoslovakia at the time. And I remember we were talking about my, our backgrounds, and I remember spending time in Poland in the summers just at, right at the border of Slovakia, and she spent her childhood summers right at the border of Poland. And they were obviously both under the Eastern Bloc. Uh, and we started talking, and we realised, so yeah, yeah, I remember we used to go across the border to get cheap stuff, because, you know, you guys were so poor. So we could get cheap shoes and beer in Slovakia. She said, no, 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 we used to go over to Poland to get cheap beer and shoes. Yeah, no, you guys were really poor, because I know, because all Poles were horse thieves. So I was like, no, 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 all Slovak- Slovakians were horse thieves. And it's this weird thing where we both were told the same stories um, about each other. How, and, and, you know, that the, the, the other... I don't know whether this was some great uh, Soviet conspiracy to keep us apart. Um, but anyway, we both thought that the other nation were ho- poor and horse thieves. Um, so if Europe, as an idea, is intimately bound up by the, nas- the establishment of the national state, and this kind of logic is at the heart of the, nationals, the idea of na- nationalism, there's quite a tough thing to change. Um, it's going to be painful. But I think the change is already upon us. And yes, I do think that the project of the European Union has brought change and has kind of forced a rethinking of those boundaries uh, of the mind, I suppose. But also, I think we need to recognize that a larger socioeconomic and technological global change that drives these things. As Bredotti says, we already live and inhabit social reality in ways that surpass tradition. We move about in the flow of current social transformations in hybrid, multicultural, polyglot, post-identity spaces of becoming. So I think what Brodotti points out, quite interestingly, is that we've already, we're already changing, but our way of thinking about ourselves and how we relate to the places we inhabit is slower to change. So this is a quote I thought was interesting from her. The European Union no longer coincides with European identity, but rather constitutes a rupture from it and a transformation. So the idea of Europe is inevitably being regrounded, not only from within, but also from without. Um, Europe is no longer the centre of the world. We're one of the peripheries. And it's got to do, as I said, with global capitalism, uh, the flow of technology and information. But what Brodotti is saying is that this process cannot, you know, is ongoing. And it, it has a lot of effects. Um, and it, it entails what I was talking about before, a disidentification with the nation state. And she says, this identification involves a loss of cherished habits of thought and representation, a move that can produce fear, sense of insecurity and nostalgia. And I think what we've seen in the recent European elections is this symptom of a process of inevitable disidentification 
that is taking place. Fear, insecurity and nostalgia are just inevitable effects of this process. But I would say they're not necessarily the end point. They don't have to be where we stop. So again, we come back to this idea of becoming minoritarian. Uh, but remember again that minoritarian has got less to do with numbers and more to do with uh, experience and attitude. Um, or we could perhaps call it becoming nomad. Um, it's a practical and theoretical process. And it's not simply about nationality. It also brings into play race, class, and gender. And the loss of empire may have been the crucial turning point in the process of the becoming a minoritarian of Europeans. But I think it's now being continued and the process ongoing through the vagaries of global capitalism and its effect on the economy and demography of the continent. Um, one of the things that Bredotti point, points out, and this is where I kind of get into the class argument. So I've chosen this famous sketch as an illustration is that dominant notions such as whiteness, maleness, or middle-class belonging, and this is Bredotti again, has no positive definition. The prerogative of being dominant means that a concept gets defined oppositionally by casting outwards upon others the marks of oppression or marginalization. So the others, the black, the female, the deviant, the different, the inferior, the immigrant, they're always the different. So these minorities are forced to construct identities, both imposed and chosen identities, why the majority, the norm, doesn't have to really consider itself so much or its own identity. And this leads to what Brodotti calls a lack of social imaginary. So displacement, oppression and marginalisation forces a minority community uh, to create identification in a way that normativity and privilege does not. And so I'd probably not be the first to suggest that this is what's behind a lot of the reactionary politics in Europe, which has been shown to tend to take root in so-called indigenous working-class communities. Um, and that there is something to be said about communities that are literally becoming minoritarian, not just in ethnic, but also, in, I think, more importantly, actually, in socioeconomic terms. But I'm not going to rehash the argument about the marginalised white working class in the UK and elsewhere in Europe, but I kind of want to start use it as a starting point. I do believe that there are a lot of people in that group who are currently experiencing the worst of the, system, uh, the symptoms of this disidentification with the nation state, so fear, insecurity and nostalgia. But I do think that the driver of their fear insecurity and nostalgia, this disidentification is far more to do with global capitalism and socio-economic change than with immigration as such. But of course the immigrants are the ones who bear the brunt of the negative emotions because they represent other. And they represent the other with an identity against those who kind of not yet have a fully formed minoritarian identity. So I'm not sure. So Mark Leonard suggested in the new statement, statesman that there is a kind of global elite versus the rest. He says, the problem is an overwhelming sense that our globalized elites have broken free from national loyalties, leaving the middle classes struggling to make ends meet in nation states they no longer control. So he kind of pits the global elite that is in with 
these changes and then the rest. I don't think that that's quite so stark. I would say that the globalised elite uh, will not remain exclusive and, in fact, is not really exclusive. Um, a, re- a quite recent study by the BBC in uh, 2013 uh, showed how the British class system is changing. I think you must have all been aware of it at the time. There was quite a lot of publicity about it in the BBC. Um, So that study suggested that only 14% of the UK population are now what traditionally defined as working class. Uh, And that the average age of this group is 65, so it's slowly fading away. And the BBC survey concluded that 61% of the population must now be described as entirely new class categories, uh, like emergent service workers, technical middle class, new affluent workers. Um, and they, the BBC says, are far more engaged uh, in modern society and the global society than the old, middle, the old working class. Uh, another recent YouGov poll indicates that the issue of immigration is actually differentiated far more by age than by class. So uh, answering the question, which of the following do you think is the most important issues facing the country at this time? The difference in points, uh, an agreement on immigration being the most important issue, uh, the difference in the class gap was 12 points, uh, but between age was 44 points. So the younger people were far more in favour, or, di- or didn't feel immigration was the major issue. Older people felt there was more of an issue. Uh, so although the traditional working class are facing challenges, the fact is the, gr- the group is in profound transition as well. And I think this is where a great danger lies, and also choice for all of us. Uh, whether to give in to fear and anxiety and nostalgia or to try to counteract it. Um, And I think that it's about the current climate uh, and about the social imaginary. So Brodotti stresses that what we are lacking is a social imaginary that adequately reflects the social realities we already experience in a post-nationalist sense of European identity. She continues, a post-nationalist sense of European identity and of flexible citizenship does not come easily and in some ways is even a counterintuitive idea. It requires extra effort in order to come into being as it raises the question of how to change deeply embedded habits of our imagination. And I think this is really important. It's about habits of imagination or the social imaginary. Um, And there was a study, a quite interesting study uh, by the Open Source Foundation um, which looked at working class communities in six European nations. Um, And they concluded that immigration is linked with popular discontent um, but also that quite a lot of... They found a lot of... Uh, willingness to negotiate differences and find common ground with newcomers as well as understand the wider social and economic factors that are having an impact in these working class communities. Um, However, interestingly, they also noted something uh, which I'd like to demonstrate like that. So, they noted, this is from the OSF Study. Different communities across Europe that we spoke to felt they were being blamed for their own marginalisation. Blame has been shifted to individuals as wider social economic factors are often downplayed. 
This is certainly true of media portrayals in the UK, and it also applies in the Netherlands, where anti-social television genre focuses on poor Dutch families with behavioural or social problems, and also in Germany. This creates powerful stereotypes that can reinforce a community's sense of exclusion. So I think this is here where we are all responsible for a changing social imaginary. So as Brudotti says, we're lacking this and we're facing a challenge. It's not easy to come to terms with this this engagement um, from our usual national identities that we we, we were comfortable with and used to. And some groups... Uh, are finding it easier than others to be disengaged. But certainly this kind of social uh, imaginary that is blaming groups for their own marginalisation or kind of fetishising their marginalisation is certainly not helping. Rather, I think, as Bradotti says, we need a model of subjectivity and identity built on compassion, affinity, community and solidarity. You know, you can't be compassionate about those worse off in another. In you know, if you can't be compassionate about those worse off in your own country, how can you be compassionate about those elsewhere, or how can you expect them to be compassionate about people in other countries? Um, to Brodotti, and she's harking back to a uh, European co- uh, continental philosophy tradition of deconstruction, which questions. Um, you know, certainties, certainties such as the self and identity. She says that the EU is a unique possibility, a laboratory for experimentation with a new idea of identity and subjectivity. And it's not a question of finding a European identity marking itself out against the rest of the world, but rather of constituting identity in Europe, which could be a model for a new global nomadic subjectivity. So Brodotti uh, uses Deleuze to this idea of the no- constitution of the nomadic subject. So what's the nomadic subject? It's a self that's not bound by nationalist or sedentary logic. The nomadic subject actively constructs itself in a complex and internally contradictory set of social relations. So it's not about not being linked to place at all. But it's having links to places that is not exclusive of permanent. It's about, and this is Brodotti's terms, multiply located subjects uh, to finding common ground shared by these multiply located subjects. And it's a difficult balance between belonging and mobility. And this takes me back to uh, Deleuze and Guattari's reading, uh, the reading I gave you, and their idea of the fuzzy set. So he talks about um, how the nomos uh, against the polis and that the nomos is a consistency of a fuzzy aggregate. Uh, it's a vague expanse around the city. Um, so it's a little bit of set theory. So in classical set theory, the memberships of elements in a set is assessed by binary terms. Okay, so bivalent condition. You're either tall or you're short. Either zero or one. That is, of course, the rational logic behind uh, us and them, behind nationalism. You're either British or you're something else. By contrast, a fuzzy set theory allows for the gradual assessment of membership of elements in a set. By this logic, you could be a little bit uh, to belong a little bit in one set and a lot in another. You can be. Quite tall, not very tall at all, but maybe a little bit tall. 
So one could be quite British and somewhat Swedish and a little Polish in varying and non-exclusive combinations. But fuzzy sets also allow for classical sets, so you can be completely European and fractionally Romanian at the same time. But it is, of course, fuzzy and vague, which is a little bit scary when you're used to, you know, the certainties. Um, it is that it's not the safe inside of the city, it's the vague expanse outside, as Deleuze and Guattari says. But as Brizotti says, we have to rethink Europe and all us as being in the periphery rather than the centre. We're no longer in the safe city. We are all on the margins. We're all minoritarians. We're all nomads. But as Brizotti says, from the beginning, I talked about embeddedness or embodiedness. So we need to think about the real material conditions. Because if we don't think that, we can't become accountable and to Brodotti accountability is what starts um, the feelings of empathy, compassion and affinity um, and the practical method of this kind of embeddedness is through memory and narrative says Brodotti so I'm going to go back to my own narrative and my own memory the last five minutes I promise um, so my grandfather uh, who died a couple of years back, he traced his origins to these people. Uh, and actually, I couldn't find any digitized versions of family photographs, but if you see family photographs of my great-grandparents, they look like that. And they are the Mokani, which are shepherds in central Romania. They're a tribe of shepherds in central Romania. And of course, you know, shepherds, nomadic, they read their sheep, um, Rome, etc. I thought, oh, okay. But his story is one of sedentarization, territorialization, I suppose. As the nation-state of Romania was established, um, the, against an Ottoman Empire, they were giving away land in the east of Romania, and my ancestors were given this land um, in the eastern side to kind of to make a, a stand against us and them so they became they got this land became very much rich land owners in the east of Romania and then also rich factory owners of living of this land uh, so they went very much from being nomads to very, very sedentary uh, maybe this is where it all went wrong when the communists took over uh, Romania after World War II uh, they took everything from my grandfather. So my grandfather at that time owned, uh, so his family owned a lot of land, but he also had a massive shoe factory and he had, I don't know, some, some sort of factories in, in Bucharest as well. The communists basically took everything and he never recovered from this. Um, it set in motion the movement which brought my father to Poland and to Sweden, his brother to the United States and as well as other aunties and uncles to Switzerland. My grandparents themselves came to Sweden, actually, when they were getting old, uh, and they were real benefits cheats. They got Swedish citizenship at the age of 75, maybe, and lived quite happily uh, on the Swedish state because, of, of course, their son was uh, a, a citizen at that time. Um, my grandfather, as I said, never recovered from this takeover, and... When he died two years ago, we realized he was writing a book about the Bolshevik Jewish conspiracy against him. Um, 
And it also waged a legal battle over many years to reclaim the ancestral lands in Romania. So I found out, um, and I had kind of mentioned they was doing something for me and my cousin. I found out that um, at the time of his death, he was in legal possession of some fields in, in eastern Romania, who would come back to this time of Romania becoming a country, and that he was claim, basically claiming a tithe from the peasants who were living at that, on that land. Uh, so he had a man who every month went and collected some cabbages or God knows, potatoes or whatever they were growing, I don't know, and sold them in the market and sent the money to my grandfather in Romania, in, in, in Sweden, uh, for these lands that were expropriated. And all that I see where my grandfather came from, uh, this is deeply disturbing to me. The point of this is, I mean, my grandfather did it because he wanted to pass something on to my cousin and I, and I can understand why he did it. But I think what my dad did when my, his father died is where we need to go, really. He made my uncle draw up a disclaimer and say he wanted nothing to do with these lands. Uh, he wanted to put an end to that particular uh, story there and then. So neither my father nor I will have any part of these land. And I think that might have been just a man getting in, making peace with his past, but also perhaps a small nomadic gesture. Um, to remind us that the spirit of the European Union now is both anti-fascist and anti-totalitarian communist, I suppose, um, and that there are small acts we can do uh, to become more nomadic rather than sedentary. So that's kind of what concludes my talk today. Um, what I wanted to do was to actually ask people what they think, because although these are a lot of suggestions, I, as I said at the beginning of the talk, I appreciate that it's kind of extremely unsatisfactory in terms of real political thinking. Uh, and so I've got a few questions. Uh, I'll skip that. <clears throat> Which you may, may or may not want to give me any answer to, or you might want to ask me questions, but it's fine. But my questions to you uh, are... Does changing the way we think about our own relation to nation and territory actually change the way we view immigration? To what extent is resistance to immigration tied with socioeconomic factors? Am I right about that? You know, what does this tell us of how to approach immigration and sentiments about it? And something I'm really interested in, to what extent is the social imaginary a useful concept? to the issue about immigration. Can we shape it? Who is responsible for the social imaginary? And also, any other practical measures that need to be taken to make the European Union a more harmonious place in terms of migration, whether that's intra or extra union? So these are really how I want to find, you know, end my talk, bring it over to you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Eva. Um, okay, let's take some questions. Uh, thanks. Um, 
Just one curiosity, which when I was listening to uh, you, you talk, sort of, uh, sort of crossed my mind, is the two countries that have negotiated an opt-out from the euro, uh, Denmark and the UK, are both monarchies. And in fact, if you look at uh, the kind of the really Eurosceptic, if you exclude France with uh, Front National, which is, I think, a special case, but if you exclude France, you will find that uh, the sort of monarchic countries in Europe are much more Eurosceptic than the republics. It's, it's an interesting idea, and so I think that the, the one aspect that I was missing in this talk is a sort of a reflection on aristocracy, which is a kind of an interesting thing, because the aristocracy was always very mobile. It, sort of estuary English is an English that doesn't tie you down to any place. Um, and so on and so on. I mean, the, the, actually, the, the British monarch, uh, monarchy is German, uh, and so on. So there's, there's been a highly mobile... At the same time, one of the main reasons why we got rid of monarchies in most parts of Europe is because they stopped us from traveling. You needed to have permits to move from A to B. And we're not talking from France to Germany. We're talking from one fiefdom to the next. So the, the aristocracy has had a big involvement with movement and with you know who moves and in what way and it, it's totally missing in your in, in, in your reflections well I think um, it kind of ties in with class and yeah I haven't chosen to talk about the upper class I've included uh, the working class I think um, I'm Certainly political sentiment, and you can tie it to the monarchies and the republics and how they feel. That would be quite interesting to actually look into that closer, To because Sweden as well is a monarchy, and it's not in the, um, in the euro. Uh, although Finland... No, Finland is... Oh, yeah, they're in the euro, and they are a republic, I think. True. Okay, so that's an interesting point. Um, I think that... Well, it's all about privilege, and I think that the lines... Are, the lines of migration has been very much drawn across privilege. Um, and if you, you know, if you're privileged, you can travel. And if you're not, you can't. And that's how it connects. So in that sense, it's, it would be interesting, yeah, to look at to what extent the working classes will have been prevented from traveling and therefore um, are kind of feel more connected to a sedentary way of thinking about their place. Uh, versus how other class classes have been enabled to I think that's that's the link it's about a tradition of enabling to travel or not if that answers your question I don't know. Uh, thank you very much very interesting talk um, I've got a question the um, the collapse of commons in the first time in the history of Europe with the, with the boundaries changed without a major conflict. I mean, in, in the past, when that happened, after Westphalia, Utrecht, Vienna, and Versailles, the boundaries changed after a major war. Now, um, the collapse of the communist state, the boundary changed after that. It was the first time it happened. So there were the fascists, and that was defeated back in 45. But I, I, have, I worked in business in Marxist Czechoslovakia, the Marxist period there, and um, I know, it, I didn't know any problem there with the police, or I wasn't beaten up or attacked during the Marxist period there. So um, I, was it not needed, perhaps, as an intermediate stage between the, between the picture of fascism and the present democracy of the European Union, which I'm a great believer in, 
but um, uh, was it, all, it wasn't also negative than Marxism, wasn't it? I'm asking you, was it might have been a necessary transition between the fascist and democracy today? Is it, you're asking if there was... A necessary transition, yes. I felt safe there. I wasn't attacked or beaten up by any policeman during the Marxist period my father was um, beaten and attacked by the, the policeman in Romania, so uh, that wasn't necessarily the best. But the fact is, regime, you have the anti-Semitic movement, the anti-regime, anti-Nesco, the fascist perspective of the party. So the Marxist version of the Jews, I personally had no problem there. I mean, the, but so you, you feel that the Marxist regimes were a necessary step towards yes. democracy from the fashion? I think I disagree with you that there was a necessary step. I think that um, any, you know, there were lots of... What about Spain? Well, it was neutral in the war. Spain was neutral. Yeah, but they didn't have a Marxist regime in between Franco and democracy, and that kind of worked out okay, although I suppose... Yeah. So, yeah. Excuse me. Uh, uh, it is working. Uh, you, uh, you counterposed what you said was uh, an European and logical tradition to a more fluid one, but uh, I don't understand why this dichotomy necessarily exists. You put the example of height, either you're short or tall, and uh, that's, not, that's not a... well. It's not exactly a traditional way of thinking. That's uh, simply a logical fallacy. Uh, I just did not understand why why makes such a criticism, which did not appear to be quite pertinent. Perhaps I misunderstood it, uh, which also did not seem to tie into what you were saying. Or, also. I think what I meant was that you can. It is all about thinking and how you think about it. So you can you can choose to. Um, Work under a logic where you categorize things and you um, put things into boxes or sets in a rigid way, uh, which seems to me be the logic behind nationalism. And or you can choose to think in a more fluid way, where belonging to different categories can be gradual, uh, fractional, um, and overlapping. So it's it's not kind of what is right or wrong about what, how reality really looks like, but how you think about it and how that influences the way you see the world in many different ways. I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about this idea of the nomadic subject. And you used a quote from Bridotti which suggested that you know, relationality is at the core of the idea of this nomadic subject. Yeah. I mean, what kind of shift does that entail in, in our thinking? Um, there was a slide which I kind of missed out because I was running late um, so I, th I was thinking you know how how do we then how to be a nomadic subject um, and it's about kind of being located accountable but not being exclusively determined um, and to me it's all about this kind of fuzzy logic that allows for overlapping affinities that you can you can be part of lots of different groups and you can pick and choose sounds flippant and 
uh, banal, but not necessarily pick and choose because I think once you locate yourself somewhere, you are, as I said, accountable. Um, but you can overlap. You can be... Your identity doesn't have to be unique or uh, determined by one particular belonging in one particular group. I think the more groups that you belong to, the more sets that you kind of um, vaguely you're part of, the more compassion and affinity for other people uh, you get. So it's kind of practically going out there and becoming part of things. I was also interested in... um you kept returning to this idea of the connection between the subject and the land and place. And, and when I think about these kind of problems, I'm always thinking about the relationship between the subject and the law. Um, well, I th- yeah, I think that's... Um, I think well, Prodotti's talked a bit about this. That thing that's problematic at the moment because the law doesn't necessarily, just like the social imaginary, doesn't necessarily represent the experience. I think the... Um, for some of us, the European law of migration has been very useful and very easy to adapt to and has been the best thing since sliced bread. But for others, it hasn't. And I think it's just it's about um, kind of trying to find a way to bridge the gap between experience and law, I suppose. Uh, that exists at the, at the moment. Uh, but that involves some people obviously having to shift more. And I think that's where the social imaginary comes in, is to help shift bridge, uh, to bridge the, the kind of gap between the law and the experience, okay. perhaps. Does that, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that, that does make sense. Other questions? Can you just wait for the mic? Thank you. Just because we're being recorded, so... The, the, the other thing that obviously wasn't supposed to be in the talk but would have been interesting as a reference point is the US uh, because of course in the US this idea of the nomadic is, 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 is part of the folklore I mean it's the frontier it's the, and today it's the sort of the trailer trash it's, it's the, you know, the, 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 there are all these sort of levels of sort of nomadic existence in the US today, most of which is actually seen as underclass, seen as CD, seen as, and, and all the rest. It's not seen as part of the American dream, but it's very much seen as part of the conception of freedom. Um, and, and, and in a way, I don't, I, I wonder whether you're reinventing the wheel by kind of just totally bracketing out the kind of the American experience. The, the, the other thing is, 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 is when you compare the US with Canada, they've got a very different conception, of course, of sort of mobility. And in the US, you've got this melting pot idea. And in Canada, you've got this idea of the mosaic, uh, which is like creating a different kind of, of, of identity. How does that relate to your conception of Europe, and how does that sort of nomadic notion that you're kind of developing for European context differ from the kind of American or the Canadian experience? Um, I think I'm with Bradotti on this. She very much pits Europe against the US, and um, yes, you're right that the, nom- the nomadic it, that underlies the American experience, I think, is quite different from the Deleuzean concept of nomadic. Uh, because if you look at immigration policy in the US today, it's very different compared to European, the European take on the same uh, case. And, and somehow it's strange, but the concept of the, Amer- the American identity, uh, although 
it has its roots in movement seems to me a very sedentary one, finally. It seems to have set, you know, it seems to have been very territorialized. You don't mean Western America, you don't mean Native American now, do you? No, I've got, yeah, I mean. And, and of course. I mean Western Americans, I mean, yeah, mean white Americans. Native Americans had also a very nomadic sense of. Yeah, I, think, I think that's true, but I think that, that has obviously not been. Uh, I think it, there are, obviously has been a lot. Uh, attempted to rebalance, but nevertheless, the concept of American identity today has very little to do with the Native Americans. Um, and I think, yeah, the, I think their sense of nomadic was very different to the frontiersmen. The frontiersmen's nomadic was a movement of conquest. It was a, a movement of acquisition and of mapping out. So if you see, if you see maps of of the of America building, you know, just slowly squaring in all the states from east to west, um, and then kind of in the middle. So I think that, yeah, I don't think that America. I think the American uh, national identity is essentially quite sedentary. And I think Europe has an opportunity to offer a new model and offer a new model of uh, how to think migration, both intra and extra European migration. Hi. Uh, from the theoretical or philosophical threshold that you presented tonight, uh, how could you interpret the crisis that is happening around undocumented migration, African undocumented migration, who intends to cross the ocean and enter in the European Union? Like how, how we understand this link between undocumented migration, violence, and the national state from your perspective? Well, that's why I think that the nomadic model is one that's why I kind of stress that the nomadic model goes beyond just intra-European migration so although that's kind of where it starts this idea of compassion and uh, empathy with people is one which would extend globally and I think that the European um, so what I would like to see although again I think and it has to do I think it has to do with the social imaginary is um a model of European citizenship, for lack of a better word, that also welcomes migrants from the rest of the world and allows a better way of dealing with them than we have currently. I know that's another challenge, and it's even more difficult uh, than dealing with intra-European migration. Um, but I think that I think that's kind of why Europe is so interesting and that why it can be positive against the US and US immigration policy um, because we have, I think Europe's already gone um, further along the line towards thinking how to integrate mig migrants or gone a very different way than the US um, but if we can try to establish a sort of nomadic subjectivity or no nomadic um, identity of Europe, uh, maybe we'd be better posited to deal with these immigrants from Africa as well, or wherever. But yeah, it's a, it's a huge challenge. Um, it's a kind of another layer. Maybe, how, how would you fit um, the languages in your reasoning, in a sense, different languages, especially in the European Union, and how people with different languages relate to nation, territory, land, uh, and if, if, 
that would fit your reason? Yeah, well, I think language is a great um, enabler. I think language is part of the social imaginary project. I think language is part of um, nomadic subjects. And I think, um, to a certain extent, education is important here. Uh, and I think, basically, the more languages you speak, the more of these overlapping identities you have access to. Um, and I think that, you know, plurality of languages to be encouraged and celebrated. But And I think there's, you know, possibly there's also been uh, a lack of... I just, certainly in this country, it's very obvious, as an immigrant from a different European country, how... Um, how little foreign languages one hears in the media um, and how little that's encouraged in schools, etc., and how difficult it is. But I think that's, that's part of this social imaginary project is to encourage um, you know, learning languages and the more you can, the more you'll be able to fit into different overlapping identities. Yeah, I was just wondering about the um, the border between Europe and everywhere else, and how that maybe puts the European project in danger. If how how much should Europe attempt to to draw that border, to draw that line? I mean, it seems to me that those who live, don't live within Europe who would like to come to Europe sustain the project they yeah. problematise the interior of Europe in precisely the way yes. it needs to be I, always problematised yeah. but what about those people who don't want and in not wanting become those that we must keep out by I'm wondering about the eastern border of Europe at the minute and how the consolidation of things along that line is maybe endangering the very project of Europe as framed the way you framed it how does Europe deal with its own Yeah, I mean, border? it is problematic because the whole idea is that the, the new European identity should not become uh, another sedentary identity, Precisely. another identity that simply... Uh, and that's why this, this kind of great experiment, and I think that's why we have to be alert to where we're taking that European identity that isn't about uh, establishing another European identity against the rest of the world that is non-inclusive, but that it always has to be kept for us. Um, but is it a kind of expansionist... No, but I did, no, I don't necessarily see it as that... Establishing a nomadic sort of subjectivity of Europeanness doesn't mean that we have to make a global Europe. I mean, practically. No, Because no, that would be impossible and a little bit crazy. No, but there are problems, aren't there? But there, of course there are problems, yeah. and there obviously always are practical... Uh, considerations uh, but then there are some people that just don't want to be part of Europe and are quite happy being not Europe as well so um, we have to neg negotiate where that border is going to go together I suppose Okay I think we'll finish there thank you all for coming um, I'd like to invite you to thank our speaker again Thank you